After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. everyone, it's Raghu, and I have got a bonus episode. It's not mind-rolling, but I want to introduce you to somebody who's been on my mind-rolling podcasts, Dr. Robert Svoboda. And uh, Robert is a gem, absolute gem. By the way, you'll be getting another mind-rolling podcast on the usual time and day. But today, I'd like you to listen to Robert's uh, show, Living with Reality. And in this first episode, uh, he's going to explore teachings around karma and learning to live with reality that he got from his teacher, Swami Vimalananda. You can search for Living with Reality with Robert Svoboda in your podcast player and subscribe if you go through iTunes or whatever, and you'll get new episodes every month. And uh, don't forget, these episodes, these podcasts are brought to you by Be Here Now Network. And all of that can only happen with your continued support. And to do that, go visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate. And uh, you can find out how to support all of these podcasts and all of the events and daily content that is made available by Be Here Now Network. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Living with Reality. I'm Paula Crossfield. I'm Dr. Sabota's media manager, and I'll be helping to select some of the lectures and talks he's given over the years from our archives to share here with you. We really hope you enjoy this content. In addition, we'll be sharing original content as well, like today's interview which I conducted with Dr. Svoboda back in December. It really goes into detail about how he came to India for the first time and learned about Ayurveda and the serendipitous circumstances that led him to the Ayurvedic college, in addition to his first meeting with the Aghori Vimalananda, his mentor. And he talks a little bit about some of the lessons he's learned and really carried into his life. We wanted to give you a sense of his background and who he is here in the first episode, since he's been studying these Indian sciences for almost 50 years. So we really hope you enjoy this. And just a few other things before we get started. Because of COVID-19, obviously, Dr. Svoboda has had to cancel a lot of his public talks, which is a shame. But out of that, we've developed a lot of online content, which has been helping a lot of people around the world in this crisis, and we wanted to continue that and make it really affordable. So we're now offering a subscription service 
that's going to give you access to some of the already recorded content, but also Dr. Svoboda is going to be doing a live lecture every month and a Q&A. So if you're interested in that, just go to drsvoboda.teachable.com and that subscription service will be there and available through the month of May. We're going to have to close it after May because we're going to be focusing on our members. So if you really want to be involved, jump in. There's a bunch of different topics already scheduled for the upcoming six months, and we think you're going to love this content. And it's super affordable. It's around a dollar a day. Another thing I wanted to tell you about is story time. So on May the 5th, Dr. Svoboda is going to be telling the story of Pralada. So if you're interested in hearing more of his stories, which he's known for, this is a totally free offering. And we're going to be sending out more information about that in his newsletter, or you can find out on his social media. So go to drsvoboda.com. That's D-R-S-V-O-B-O-D-A.com for all the latest updates. Now for the interview. I hope you enjoy. This is the first episode of your new podcast, so I thought that we should sit down and tell people a little bit about your background and also the topic. I mean, there, are, there will be a lot of archives that we have, you know, from talks that you've given over the years that we'll be putting up for people to listen to, but um, the concept that we've chosen to name this is living with reality. So maybe we could start there and you could talk about what living with reality actually means to you. The genesis of that phrase um, lies with uh, Vimalananda, my mentor. He was very fond of saying, and he said repeatedly, most of the time in English, because he could speak many languages, that it is always better to live with reality because if you don't, you can be sure that reality will come to live with you. And that's something that even from the first time that he said it had uh, exerted a strong impression on me um, because by the time I met him, I had already been living in India for almost a year and a half. And before that, I had been traveling in Africa and Asia and Europe for a year. And um, I had been exposed already to realities which were very different from the reality that I had grown up with in Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma. And uh, in fact, the my very concept of what reality meant and what was real and not real had already undergone some challenges. So his words, though, um, really struck a chord in my being. And um, I have been striving ever since to actually live with reality and Certainly, sometimes I've been able to do that more effectively and more accurately and sometimes much less effectively, according to my own karmas and the blind spots uh, that they produce. Uh, and um, I am not pleased to 
uh, have to say that at the advanced age of 66 and a half, uh, that I am uh, still having to learn for myself what reality is. But on the other hand, I'm glad that I can still be learning things at the advanced age of not that far away from 70, three score years and 10. So can you talk a little bit, let's back up for a moment and talk about how you came to India as, you know, a person growing up in the 50s and 60s in Oklahoma and Texas and Louisiana. How did you find your way to India? Um, I was very fortunate in so many ways. Um, and I was fortunate at sometimes in ways that I did not realize I was fortunate. And one way in which I was fortunate is that my father worked for an oil company and we moved from place to place. And my mother taught school, so it was easy enough for her to find work as well. And uh, I was fortunate because I was able to uh, experience a, a different realities. Um, and certainly Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma are three different realities. I was very fortunate to arrive in Louisiana uh, just when I was uh, able to join the governor's program for gifted children, a summer enrichment program that I attended for four summers that had a tremendous effect on me. Uh, it was the first time I heard the name Sanskrit, for example. Uh, I was very fortunate. I went to a public high school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Edison High School, which at that time was a very good high school. Um, and, but I, while I was in high school, I started to become very unsatisfied with, with not necessarily with reality, but with, with with what was being presented to me as reality. And uh, I read the Bhagavad Gita for the first time then, uh, the old Edgerton translation. And I was exposed to some of the works of Sri Aurobindo that uh, at that time were completely over my head. Um, but I knew that there was something out there that I needed to be exposed to, but I didn't exactly know how to do that. So. I decided to um, speed up my progress. I was always good at taking tests. I graduated from high school when I was 16. I was able to graduate from the University of Oklahoma at age 18 uh, for ver via various methods. Um, and I didn't know what to do then. So I, my, several of my friends were going to medical school. So I decided to do that. I got admitted to medical school at the University of Oklahoma and decided that before I spent the next 10 years in a laboratory that I should go to um, experience something exotic. And the most exotic thing I could think of at that time in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma was to go to Africa. So back at that time, of course, there was no internet, no mobile phones. You got things out of what we call books, including big, thick books that we called encyclopedias. And if you were lucky, you were able to, if people were writing books that were very unusual, you could still somehow find out about them. And 
I don't know how I found out about, there was a little booklet called, uh, it was something like Across Africa Overland or something like that. It was a very thin book uh, and I wrote off for it. And I used that as my map to go across Africa Overland. And it told you exactly what to do. Uh, get down to Mauritania and take the iron ore train to Shum and then get, there will be a truck and it will take you down to uh, Senegal and then you do this. And so I, I crossed overland and um, that was uh, a very much an eye-opening experience. Um, and probably the initially the most eye-opening experience was um, I got sick eating some uh, some tainted food um, it tainted with parasites in uh, on the ba on the border between Mali and Ivory Coast and ended up in Ivory Coast extremely unwell and um, was ex extraordinarily fortunate to walk into a bookstore that was run run by two young Frenchmen and uh, they said to me, you look terrible. And I said to them, I feel terrible. And they took me to their apartment where they were living. And they brought a young uh, witch doctor to visit me. Uh, that's what they were calling him. And um, it transpires that uh, they and he were going to a witch doctor's convention out in the out in the the, the bush that weekend um, and uh, he was a very nice young Ivoirian uh, 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 I f forget what tribe he belonged to but uh, he came and looked at me and all he did and I watched him carefully he got a glass of pure water and mumbled something over it and gave it to me and um, I promptly went to sleep, and when I woke up, I was 90% better. And um, this was something completely unheard of to me. I couldn't believe that such a thing could happen. But having had it, having had it happen to me, I was mightily impressed. And I stayed there for another, I don't know, week or something to regain some of my energy and read a copy of Autobiography of a Yogi for the first time. And that made me interested to some degree uh, in India, uh, but just it was more of a, as Vimalananda would put it, a, the coming event casting a shadow before it. Uh, I continued crossing overland with various vicissitudes, getting sick again in Nigeria and having a young uh, Yoruba guy pick me up and take me home with him and uh, joining the Pokot tribe in Kenya as its first white member. And then, um, and, and interestingly enough, the woman who um, led the expedition um, it, that, that I attended to ethnographic expedition to, to meet the tribe and join it, um, uh, at that time was, her name was Elizabeth, Jean Brown. She now goes by Jean Sassoon. She got married afterwards. She lived in Africa for 25 years, in Spain for 25 years, and I met her 
I've met her a few times since in Spain. She's now uh, a little bit past 90, but still very much active, still publishing ethnographic anthropological things about the Pocote and her work in Africa, still driving around uh, in her town. Uh, so um, I'm very fortunate to have known her uh, when she was uh, much younger and to have known her when she's now much less young. Um, that was a very strong experience. I flew from Nairobi to England um, and then I crossed overland to uh, Nepal uh, via uh, Iran, which at that time was still being ruled by the Shah, and Pakistan and India. I really didn't like India the first time I went there. There were too many people. Uh, I got my belongings stolen uh, on the border of India and Nepal. And I really didn't want to have to um, deal with India. I loved Nepal. We had family friends that were there. One of my high school and college buddies I discovered uh, serendipitously was there in the Peace Corps. So I had a great time there. Went to Everest Base Camp, went to the cheese factory in the Long Tong Valley, and planned to continue remaining there until I, two things happened. One is I heard about Ayurveda from the Peace Corps doctor, Dr. Larry True, excellent name, uh, for someone who is giving you good advice and is a doctor. And also I discovered that the Dalai Lama was giving a Kala Chakra initiation in Bodhgaya in January. Now, I had no idea what Bodhgaya was about, and I had no clue about what the Kala Chakra was about, but I had at least heard of the Dalai Lama, and everybody who was anybody in Kathmandu was going down to that. So I thought, well, everybody's going down there. I have to go there too. And so I went down there, and I met some Ayurvedic doctors, and I became more interested in Ayurveda, but even more to the point, and I had the darshan of the Dalai Lama, and and the I had a strong experience at the Kala Chakra, but possibly the thing that affected me most at that event, Bodhgaya is the place where Buddha attained enlightenment, um, probably the most the strongest um, impression was made by a great Tibetan Lama named Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, who um, uh, had done tremendous extreme penance for a long time. And I had no clue whoever what he was. He was a very large man, so he was imposing by his height and his frame and size and so on. But also there was just something about him. There was a, uh, there was a personal uh, vibration, a sense of personal uh, power and not power that was being directed through his ego as an individual, just that he was acting as the channel for this power to express itself through him. Uh, I said to myself, I, I don't know what that is. I don't know where it came from, but I've got to try to get some, I've got to try to experience that myself somehow. So coming to India again, 
Did you have a sense that India was the place to find that? Um, after the Kala Chakra, I had the sense that India was the place to find that. Uh, quite possibly, uh, I could have found something uh, similar in Nepal or somewhere else. But at that time, it the very fact that this had happened in India made me think, no, this is, there's, uh, this India is the place I, I need to be for some time so I can, I can connect to whatever this yoga business is. And I didn't have any real uh, clue as to how to proceed, but I did have a train ticket to go from Gaya, which is near Bodh Gaya, to Bombay. And so 36 hours later, I arrived in Bombay and um, felt immediately at home, which I've always felt since in Bombay, and um, wandered around the city for uh, probably three or four days until a train of events was set in motion that led to me entering the Ayurvedic College. Can you tell us about that? Um, I was traveling with a friend of mine, also named Robert, um, and um, we had um, we'd been sampling Bombay, and when uh, right around dusk one day, we um, were in Kolaba, uh, outside a small Chinese restaurant, which doesn't exist anymore. This is 1974, January. And just at the moment that we walked up to the front door, a man and his wife and son came out of the restaurant. So I asked the man, is this a good restaurant, sir? Would you suggest that we eat here? And the man immediately whipped out some money, handed it to us, said, why don't you eat here tonight and come and eat at our house tomorrow? So I thought, sure, why not? And uh, that's what we did. And I became uh, very friendly with the family. The, his name was Mr. Prafal Daftari. His wife's name was Kamla. And uh, I would used to house sit for them, for them when they went to um, the UK or the US. Um, uh, and there seemed to be some kind of connection. And even though I certainly had no clue, I have more of a clue about the law of karma now, but not so much then. But even then, it seemed significant that he was the, at that time, the managing directory, managing director of a brewery in Bombay that was brewing beer to the recipe of Tusker beer, which is the national beer of Kenya. So I thought, huh, Kenya, India, Bombay, there's a connection. And I was already thinking of taking the boat from Bombay to Mombasa and going back and living with the tribe for a while. But then I met the Daftaris and they said, what are you doing here in India? And I said, well, um, I had been intending to go back to um, the U.S. and go to medical school, but... Um, when I was in Africa, I, I realized that there was more to medicine than um, 
than what we think of as modern medicine. And now here in India, I'm very interested in uh, yoga and I've just learned about Ayurveda. So I'm, I would like to know more about Ayurveda. And they said, well, uh, the only thing we know about Ayurveda is that Mr. Daftari said my mama, my maternal uncle, uh, was the chairman of the committee that translated the Chetaka Samhita, which is probably Ayurveda's most or best known uh, text, translated it um, in the late 1940s into English, Hindi, and Gujarati. So I thought, well, there's definitely a connection there. And they said, and I met Dr. Mehta, he was a very nice man, but they said, other than that, we don't know anything. But if you will simply walk downstairs, one floor right underneath us is the flat of Dr. Punchi and Mrs. Punchi. And they have visiting with them a saintly man from Hyderabad. And he may be able to give you some advice. So I thought, what a great idea. So I walked downstairs and knocked on the door and uh, explained that the Daftaris had sent me there to meet Mr. Krishnapuri Narayana Baba. So I met him and I said, um, I'm here in India and I was thinking I would like to study yoga and Ayurveda. And he said, what a great idea. And I said, I don't know how to go about it. So then he said, well, let's ask Mr. Fazelboy. And Mr. Fazelboy was an industrialist there. Uh, and despite being a Muslim, was very um, aligned with other uh, uh, spiritual paths as well. And Mr. Fazelboy, it transpires, happened to belong to the same Rotary Club chapter, Rotary Club Bombay South, that um, Pandit Shiv Sharma belonged to. And Pandit Shiv Sharma was the most eminent Ayurvedic Vaidya, Ayurvedic doctor in India in that generation. In fact, so eminent that he was elected to parliament twice, specifically for the purpose of regularizing Ayurvedic education in a legal framework in India. So um, I went to meet Pandit Shiv Sharma and I said to him, Panditji, I would like very much to uh, know if there is a way I can study Ayurveda in India. And he, uh, he said, you're in luck because it transpires that in Pune, which is not that far away from here, um, the Tilak Ayurved Mahavidyalaya is going to have uh, a batch uh, for the new Ayurvedic BAMS course that will be held in the medium of English. So yes, you will have to study Sanskrit and you'll have to pass for question papers in Sanskrit at the end of your nine months of your first year, but um, at least you won't have to learn Sanskrit and Marathi at the same time. So I thought this is a big plus. And um, then the most critical aspect of this whole thing was he wrote out a letter saying that, um, dear Tilak Ayurved Mahavidyalaya, please admit this student into your course. And so I took that letter to Pune and I went into the Ayurvedic college and very likely 
I was certainly the, the first non-Indian to uh, request uh, enrollment there, and very, quite possibly I was the first um, Westerner ever to visit the college. And I went in and said, I've come here to enroll in your college. And just as they were collecting all the reasons why that would not happen, I presented my letter from Pandit Shiv Sharma, he who could not be refused. And with a certain amount of quiet grumbling, they set into motion the process by which I joined the college. So it really seemed like it was meant to be with all of these things falling into place. There, From the moment that I met the daftaris at that restaurant until I was enrolled in the college was, might have been as little as a week, probably was definitely not more than 10 days. So to have gone from having no clue what to do to being enrolled in an Ayurvedic college in 10 days uh, definitely struck me as being um, uh, noteworthy. So can you talk a little bit about the first time you met Vimalananda and how you felt or, or what struck you about him? The reason I was trying to, uh, that I met Vimalananda was that um, I had been fortunate before I left the U.S. and having a good um, summer job for four months, I was able to that paid really well. I was able to save a lot of money. Um, but, and fortunately at that time, it was not at all expensive to um, study at the Ayurvedic College, but I, uh, I did need to get a couple of grants in order to facilitate my stay there during the entire six years of the course. And um, uh, the first grant that I got was from the U United States um, National Endowment for the Humanities. And it was a to do some simple ethnography on uh, what Ayurveda was and how it was being employed in, uh, in the state of Maharashtra generally. Maharashtra is where both Bombay, or nowadays they call it Mumbai, and Pune are located and with special focus on Pune. So I was, uh, I was uh, meeting as many Ayurvedic doctors as I could, um, including the, of course, and one of the, my most important uh, informants in this context was Dr. Vasant Lad, who the college had assigned me to since he had some facility with English and since, um, uh, back at that time, the college was assigning as much work as they could to Dr. Lod, who was um, had only recently uh, joined the institution. Um, and so, uh, I was being, various people were being suggested to me. And one day, the uh, Sanskrit professor who was looking out for me to people for me to. Um, uh, interview um, told me about someone he had heard of who lived in Bombay, but who regularly came to Pune during the racing season. Uh, 
because he owned racehorses, but who was very knowledgeable in Ayurveda and Jyotish and Tantra and all sorts of Indian sciences. And so, and it transpired that whenever he was in Pune, he would stay with a family who lived a 20 minute walk away from where, uh, where I was staying in the Ayurvedic, uh, the hostel, the dormitory. And so, um, the, uh, I simply showed up there one day and he wasn't there, but I found out when he was likely to be back. And then I went back again and explained to him who I was and what I was doing. And, um, requested to give him a questionnaire that I had prepared and printed out and uh, with the hope that he would answer it for me, either in written form or when I returned verbally. And he said, why don't you just hold on to your questionnaire? And then we started to talk. And over the next few days, he answered all of my questions without me asking them, which did impress me. And he said a couple of other things that impressed me even more. And then pretty soon I was um, meeting him on a daily basis. And then pretty soon we were um, doing many things together. So did you get a sense that he had that thing, like you mentioned, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche having? Um, I did, but it was, it was a different thing because, um, and at the time, of course, I had no clue about it, but um, it was... It was not so evident on the surface. Um, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche was, his job was to be as transparent as possible all the time. And Vimalananda, as I've discovered later, could be completely transparent to reality, but also made it a point not to, because he was much involved in the world, certainly more than Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, uh, because he was so involved in the world, he, uh, on uh, much of the time, um, appeared to be uh, a simply a simple worldly person, and did not always let people know uh, what he was really up to, um, which he explained uh, was the appropriate thing to do, especially when you're interacting with people who were worldly and really who have no value for spirituality and uh, who, f for whom it would be inappropriate to speak about spiritual things because their um, uh, lack of openness to that would, um, would make that the, the very karma of speaking about it a, an undesirable, a karma that would have undesirable results. I know it would be a lot to ask you to choose one thing that he taught you that really was the most important, but if you would talk about one thing that you really have taken throughout your life that you find to be um, something that you talk about a lot or that you use a lot in your day-to-day -day life that you learned from him. Um, well, I would say it is, if I had to select one thing, and of course, living with reality could well be that one thing. Um, but one aspect of living with reality is something that he suggested that he himself did and that I have been doing ever since. And that is in the morning, uh, 
always to the first thing to do in the morning when you wake up is to be thankful for being alive and to be aware that you are absolutely going to die. It, it may be today, it may not be today, but that death is absolutely inevitable and to be prepared for it. And, um, and, and he also would, uh, pray, uh, which is something that I do as well to pray to reality, um, not to allow him to cheat his own conscience. So to always be open during the day to what was the right thing to do and to always try to do the right thing. Uh, and then at night, uh, he would have three questions to ask himself, which are three questions I still ask myself. Have I, have I lived? Have I really taken advantage of this day, which will never come back and is, brings me one day closer to the grave or the funeral pyre? Have I loved as part of that living? Have I really opened myself to um, the people around me in a uh, in an open-hearted way? And have I laughed at my own limitations and at the ways that my own ego and my own personality structure has tried to interpose itself or manipulate the situation or interfere with that direction, direct connection to reality. So I have found uh, this, and, and this is a kind of niyama, a, a regular daily practice that um, is something that can, at the very least, uh, assist a person to keep their attention focused on trying to live with reality. And of course, a lot of the content that we'll have here on the podcast will go into a lot more detail about different stories that you have with Vimalananda and different learnings that you've had from him. And then, of course, your expertise in Ayurveda and other topics. But I just wanted to finish by getting you to talk a little bit about what you think Ayurveda brings to a modern world that we live in now. There are many good things to be said about modern medicine including particularly that it is of great use in a life-threatening crisis. Um, unfortunately, by virtue of it focusing on crises, um, it is not so useful in the context of trying to prevent the crisis from occurring. Um, and that's what Ayurveda is really all about. It is a medical system, but more than that, it ayuhu vedaha. Veda means the knowledge of, and ayuhu means life. So it's no, it's it's the study of everything that has to do with embodied life, with life in a protoplasmic organism. Um, and I think it is particularly critical nowadays that um, that we are seeing we have seen the appearance of and we are seeing an increasing interest in transhumanism, the concept that uh, that hum the, the next stage in human um, 
evolution will be to export our personalities into machines. And uh, for various reasons, I believe this will never be possible uh, in actuality. But the very fact that people are interested in this and they're trying very hard to focus on it instead of focusing on um, trying to find a healthier and more equitable way of living with the reality in which we have evolved. Um, so many people nowadays believe that, oh, humans have simply ruined the planet and now we have to, we have to move to other uh, planets and we will, that's how human, the human race will survive. Um, again, I think that this is exactly the wrong direction to be focusing. I think it is critical that instead we focus on the ecosystem of living things and how we can return uh, the human species into right alignment with all the other species with whom we have evolved and with whom we are sharing the planet. Did you have anything else you wanted to say before we wrap up? Um, only that Ayurveda, Jyotish, Vastu, all of these sciences are completely and utterly endless. So um, I have studied them for uh, many decades. And the more that I learn, the more I discover just, in fact, how ignorant I am. So... Um, while I will be speaking about my own experience with various of these things, I would like to emphasize that this is my own experience. By no means do I claim to know everything or even a large fraction of everything. And as Vimalananda said um, repeatedly to me, do not take whatever I say as the gospel truth. Always try it out see if it works for you. If it works for you, go ahead and do it and be serious about it and be genuine about doing it and get the result. If it doesn't work for you, throw it out and find something else new. Um, because he was always fond of saying um, that he did not believe in sampradaya. Sampradaya means a sect, like a religious or spiritual sect. He was not sectarian. He didn't believe in sampradaya. He believed in sampradaha, which means total incineration, burning down everything, all concepts, all mental obstructions, all limitations that keep you from the direct perception of reality. So not an easy thing to do, but something that is certainly worth attempting. Thank you. You're welcome.